Hi, my name is Jeff. And it's hard to believe that it's been more than a decade now since that day that my wife, Jen, and I, while on a trip to Taiwan, had the chance to visit an orphanage. That day, we held a little guy who was just 10 days old. And before we left, she and I prayed together that God would give him a home where he would know that he is loved. Not just that the family loves him, but that he would know that God loves him. It was a little more than a year later that we received the word. That little guy whose name is Nick would be our son. And to be honest, what God did in that whole experience with our family and then the group of people who were around us who shared the same heart for kids. And then there were the people that we met along the way, even from different countries. Together, we began to ask the question, could we be a part of God using us to make an even greater impact for kids around the world? And Project Nick was born. Now, five countries six shelters, some 250 kids that are cared for. And their stories, they will break your heart. Many of them are in third world countries. Sometimes it's parents who die in the war, and there is no one, absolutely no one left to take care of them. I'm not exaggerating to tell you that we've had kids in the shelter who were found as babies, left in the trash. But it's been 10 years now, and we've watched those babies grow into toddlers, and some of those toddlers grow into little boys and girls. Some of those that were in the beginning now are old enough that they're starting to graduate. Some of them are going to college. They aspire to be teachers and engineers, and even missionaries, they are going to impact the world with the love that impacted them. So I want to thank you for choosing to be a part of this event, because in choosing to do so, you are becoming a part of such an impact. From Mahomes to Salvi, there are some MVP items up for bid. But do not be mistaken, when you choose to reach into the life of a child where there is no hope and you give them hope, you become a most valuable player in the greatest mission in the world. I pray God's blessing on you and your family. And I thank you from my heart for blessing Project Nick. I tell myself, don't get emotional, don't get emotional, don't get emotional, and then I get emotional. But it's because I can't help it. Because I know the difference that Project Nick makes in the lives of a lot of kids around the world. That little video we shot to be a part of um, uh, another bigger video that's going to launch this coming Thursday. The reason is because we are currently doing an auction online for Project Nick. It's going on right now. The final day is Thursday, and on that day, um, uh, TJ is actually going to be the, the host of that event, and there are going to be some other videos along with that one. You'll have to, you'll, you can fast forward through that one if you want to, but you, you'll, there'll be some other videos that, that'll be a part of that, and it'll just explain more about what Project Nick is all about. Um, there's a couple of websites that you can use to get to the auction. One is, is our own heartoflife.org. The other is if you go to Project Dash Nick. You can't leave the dash out, all right? Project-Nick.org. You go to either one of those websites and you'll see a button that says, join the auction here. It'll send you to an auction site. You get your bid number. You register. Most of you know how that works with an auction. You get your number and then you can be a part of an auction 
that has a great purpose. Um, I thought I'd just show you a little bit here. Thank you, sir. Just a couple of uh, maybe the items that are a part of that. Like this one. Uh, Mr. Mahomes signed uh, like a 16 by 20, I think it is. Isn't that pretty cool? That's pretty cool, right? Oh, sorry. Nope, good stuff. Or that would be signed by, I'm saying, a future Hall of Famer, Mr. Kelsey himself. So a a replica helmet of of, uh, Travis Kelsey. I hope he catches a lot today. Um, This would be a cheetah skin, all right, number 10. That's autographed by uh, Tyreek Hill himself. Uh, there, there are um, Royals items on. There's more Chief stuff too, by the way. Um, Royals items on there. Salvi's got a couple of uh, autographs on there. Um, there is some great food items. There is artwork. There is dirt work. You can get a whole day of skid steer dirt work for. It's on the on the, on the uh, auction. There's an airplane ride. I'm saying there's some pretty cool stuff on there. Um, even if you don't like sports, I, I bet you could find something, all right? But I'm asking you today as the church, help us spread the word. That's the goal. Spread the word even beyond Heart of Life. We want to connect with people who recognize um, a mission that is worthwhile going after. And you never even know the families and people we might connect to out of an event like this. So heartoflife.org or projectnick.org uh, or with the dash. Don't forget the dash. And we'll see what happens this week, all right? It is an auction, but it's not just an auction. It's an auction with an eternal purpose. I'm going to tell you that speaking of purpose, as we make our way through the gospel of Luke together, I have never, ever seen so clearly how purposeful Luke is in how he writes and in exactly what he gives us. This week, we have been in chapter 4. And if you're not walking this out with us, I want to invite you on in. You're still not far behind at all. Four little chapters in Luke, you can, you can catch up pretty quickly. But we're walking through a chapter a week. And chapter 4 is where Luke gives us his first account of Jesus' public ministry. Now, it's important that we understand none of the gospel writers record all the events in Jesus' life. None of them do. Today, I'm going to show you how that applies to Luke, okay? Now, I think it's helpful, perhaps, if we start with a little map, because for me, that kind of visual just helps me out when I'm, when I'm tracking um, a life and a journey. So, what we know... The the land of Israel, you could think of it as three parts. To the north, you got Galilee. Middle, you got Samaria. And to the south, Judea. Well, we know that Jesus is baptized. And then after that, there is the temptation, which Luke records for us in chapter 4, about verses 1 through 13. After that, what we know is that Jesus goes north back toward his hometown of Nazareth, where he also, a short distance from Nazareth, his walking distance, would be Cana, where he performs the first miracle that, that, that we know of, where he turns the water into wine. He, he probably stays there a week or two because that was a normal wedding in that day, all right? And you thought weddings today were bad, all right? A, a week or two was, was the wedding in that day. At which point, he would have then journeyed a little more north to Capernaum, which would have been up here around the Sea of Galilee. But then he heads south toward Judea. He's going to spend almost a year um, doing miracles. He will clean the temple for the first time. He will talk to to, to people like Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus' story? Like the for God so loved the world story? That's going to happen. Uh, he journeys back through Samaria where the woman at the well story happens and many Samaritans, right, believe the gospel. Luke 
skips all of that. Luke skips all of that. But John doesn't. That's the beautiful thing about the four Gospels. You can take John 1 through 4 and fill in the gap right here with with what Luke chooses not to cover. But then Luke picks up the story, chapter 4, verse 14, as Jesus is moving back to Galilee. Look what it says. Jesus returned to Galilee, back north, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching, we're coming back to that word, in their synagogues, we'll cover that word, and everyone praised him. So a year and a half, Jesus, it says, travels through these villages. Josephus, the historians tell us, the historian tells us, there were approximately two Let's see, 240 of those towns and villages. That's a lot to cover. So plenty of people to visit. Luke chapter 4 through chapter 9 kind of gives us this section. And Jesus becomes known as the teacher. What's he teaching? He's teaching God's word, which of course is his own word. But he's teaching it with with power and, and clarity. Is he doing miracles? Yes, he is. But the miracles draw attention to the fact that he is the Messiah, that he is God in human flesh. But it was his message that was always the priority. So when we look at this little word teaching, it comes from the Greek word that we get our word didactic. So uh, didactic learning means an explanation of the meaning of something. That's what Jesus is doing. But as it pertains to Scripture. But where is he doing that? It says he's doing it in the synagogue. It's a funny little word, but we're going to see it over and over as we walk through Luke. Every town. Now, how many did Josephus say there were? 240 at least. Every town had a synagogue because it only required 10 Jewish men in one area for a synagogue to be officially formed. Philo, another ancient Jewish writer, tells us that those synagogues were called houses of instruction because this was the place where God instruction for God's word that we would know as the Old Testament, so the first part of our Bible, they don't have, right, Luke yet. The, the, the Old Testament, this is where they would give instruction. Now, the synagogue was not like the temple, the temple that was in Jerusalem. In the synagogue, no sacrifices were made. People would gather to read God's word, and then it would be explained. Just an interesting fact I was studying over the last couple of weeks. Synagogues were typically made of stone, and they almost always faced Jerusalem. So any structure called the synagogue would typically face Jerusalem. So Galilee, which was in the north, it would face Jerusalem the south, because that's where Jerusalem was. That's where the temple was. So when the, when the teacher or the preacher is speaking, he's always facing the back door that faced toward that temple. Here's, here's just something that clicked with me. For Jesus, every synagogue he ever preached in, he was facing Calvary. Even literally. 240 towns and villages. And some of them had more than one synagogue. Jesus had a lot of places to teach. Now, I'm just spending a little extra time on the synagogue today because it's one of those words I think we hear when we read through Scripture, but we don't really know what in the world it means. And by the time we're done with Luke, we will have been in the synagogue with Jesus a lot. So the way the story goes is when when God's people Israel at times were in captivity, at times they were dispersed into other areas, other lands, they didn't have their temple. And so what would they do? They would start to gather in groups where God's word would be read and it would be taught. Well, when they were able to come back to their own land, 
they, they just sort of kept that habit going, the people who would gather together. Yes, they would still go to the temple at certain times, but the synagogues would form in every town, sometimes multiple ones in those towns, people coming together. The synagogue had a ruler. So sometimes when you hear Jesus talking to the rulers, it's talking about the leaders of the synagogues. They would not only oversee the facility, but they would also oversee often a school at each of the synagogues where the, where the kids would learn about God's word. And the ruler was what was called a lead elder. Because in, in Jewish matters, when, a, when, a, when an issue arose in the community over legal matters, it wasn't a trial by jury, it was a trial by elders. They handled the stuff themselves. And the ruler of the synagogue would have been the lead elder in that responsibility. He was also responsible for like the the flow of what we would call almost the order of worship. So a service that would happen at the synagogue, which happened almost every day, he would be the one who chose who was going to read the scripture and and who was going to do the teaching. And he was responsible for the flow of what happened. They would sing, they would pray, they would read scripture, they would teach that scripture, and, and there would even be blessing. Well, that doesn't sound so crazy, does it? Sounds kind of like what we're doing. There was also at least one man in every synagogue who was the interpreter. So the Hebrew scripture would be read, and then the interpreter would then interpret that into the language of wherever that particular synagogue would be located. There was also somebody who was responsible for the scrolls. I mean, that was precious to them. They saw that as God's word. They kept it in a, in a chest. And that, that person was responsible to get the right scroll to the right reader at the right time. It is key to understand there was not a full-time teacher in every synagogue. So like when we think about whatever church we belong to, there's typically somebody who is responsible for bringing that teaching all the time. In the synagogue, there was not one teacher at each place. The teachers would travel. And they would move typically location to location. And when a teacher arrived at a synagogue, they were allowed to speak. It was called the freedom of the synagogue. I want you to consider something. How amazing is it that God set all that up at the right time for Jesus to step onto the scene? How cool is that? Like, how cool is that that God would appoint that whole system to be in place, just in Galilee, 240 plus synagogues, all of which Jesus had immediate access to. He shows up, the freedom of the synagogue, they would invite him to teach. How amazing is it that this whole entire system is set up where when Jesus appears at just the right time, he has the means from which to communicate the truth that he came to communicate. By the way, even after Jesus' death and his resurrection, the apostles continued to use the synagogues for that purpose. When we get to the book of Acts, we'll read about the apostle Paul, and when he goes into a new town, anybody remember where he goes first? To the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue, and he would teach in the synagogue. He would tell them the good news of Jesus. People would believe in Jesus, and all of a sudden, a church would be born. Most of those churches in that day were born out of the synagogue where people gathered to hear teaching about God, but they often did not know yet who Jesus is. All right, again, like, why are you telling us this? Because you're going to see the synagogue over and over again, and even today, it helps us understand why Luke gives us this story. 
Back to the story. Verse 16. He, that's Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Why does God inspire Luke to start here with Jesus' public ministry? Why didn't Luke include all that stuff that John included? Why does Luke start here? We asked this same question when it came to the, to the story of the 12-year-old Jesus in the, in, the, in the temple. Remember that? Why would Luke put that in there? Well, the answer is very similar. It's because what Jesus says in the synagogue on this day that we're about to read, again, identifies him as the Messiah. But there's more. On this day, it also perfectly defines Jesus' mission. Now, Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. This is what he calls home. He was born where? Bethlehem. Stays there for a little while, maybe as much as a year or two because the the, the wise men are going to come there later when he's in a house. But then Herod, you remember, threatens. He's going to kill all the the baby boys, and so they, they must flee. They flee to Egypt. But when they come back to Israel, where does Mary and Joseph land? They go to Nazareth. And Jesus will live most of the first 30 years of his life there. But no miracles. He's not teaching yet. The people of Nazareth see him as a son who is working in his father's carpenter shop. They don't yet fully know who lives among them. They don't yet know because they've not yet been able to see fully Jesus' power. This event that we read about today in Luke 4 actually sets in motion Jesus' death. Because by the time this Sabbath day is over, the people of Nazareth will want to kill him. I tell guys all the time, you think your first sermon was rough. First talk in Nazareth, and they want to kill him. Jesus' headquarters for ministry will actually relocate to Capernaum because of that reason. But he will always be referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. But on this day, here's where he stands. He's been baptized. He has passed the test of an enemy who has tempted him in the wilderness for 40 days. He's done a miracle of turning water into wine. He has cleaned the temple. He he has presented the gospel to Nicodemus, even seen many Samaritans that nobody thought could ever be right with God. Many Samaritans believe the gospel. And now he's back in Galilee, and I'm telling you, word travels fast. Cana was just a walk away, so they heard about the water into wine. They knew about that in Nazareth. And the whole, the whole cleansing of the temple, right, where, where, where he turns over some tables, and that, they heard about that too. You know why? Because it happened at the Passover, which means many of the people who lived in Nazareth would have traveled there. They would have seen it. They would have heard it. The word about Jesus is spreading. They they hear about him being a teacher. And so I'm telling you on this day when the homegrown boy is back in town and he steps into the synagogue, the place was packed. And it says that little phrase, on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. I love that. Because anywhere you read in the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if it's the Sabbath day, 
You know where Jesus is? In the synagogue. Here's the question I raise. Why is it that you and I have a tendency to think that we can do without something that God says we cannot do without? Something that even Jesus, God himself, made a part of his regular rhythm of a week where every Sabbath day he gathered with the people of God to pray and, and to hear God's word, to be encouraged, to be strengthened. Why is it that you and I think we can somehow do without what God has designed and what Jesus himself made a regular habit of his life? But on this occasion, for Jesus, it was different. Because it says at the beginning of verse 16, or end of 16, he stood up to read. He stood up to read. Now, to stand was a sign of respect. And I want you to get the picture here. Jesus is reading God's word. Jesus is reading God's word. That means it's therefore whose word? (laughs) It's his. He is the writer, he is the reader, and he is becoming the teacher. Here's what it says, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, which by the way, apparently all of Isaiah can be contained in one scroll. Sometimes books of the Bible had to take more than one scroll, but when the, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were actually found, Isaiah was one scroll. So it was likely that everything was one. They, he unrolls it. He found the place where it's written. And what he's reading is this place in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I'm telling you, when the Jews heard Isaiah 61 read, they knew, because they had grown up learning it, it was about the Messiah. They knew that. They knew that what, what Isaiah wrote, it was about the Messiah. And they knew that the, 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 the Messiah would be anointed. Anointed means set apart. It means empowered. In this case, by the Spirit of God. And come on, you've read it already. Luke has done a good job of making sure that you and I understand the Holy Spirit's role in this whole thing so far. Jesus anointed for this mission. And speaking of mission, I'm convinced you just can't get a better summary That if somebody asks you, what's the mission of Jesus about? This is what we're reading today that Isaiah wrote a long time ago when Jesus affirms this is the mission. Here's what he said. He's here anointed to proclaim, first of all, good news to the poor. Now, I want us to understand that the good news is not that poor people are going to suddenly become rich people. That's not the good news. The good news is not that poor people are going to have economic prosperity. What Jesus is talking about here is people who are spiritually poor. The word for poor here is ptohos, right? That'll change your life, all right? It's a verb in Greek that means to cringe, It means to shrink back. It means to cower. And in classical Greek, this little word, patohos, is the picture of a beggar. A beggar who has found a corner, has one hand extended, and the other hand is covering his identity. Because he, as as a beggar, is in utter shame He is absolute destitute. He has nothing. Now, the ordinary word for poor, penikros, 
means very little. It's a word that Luke will use later, like all the way to chapter 21, we will read a story about a widow who has a few pennies. Remember that story? She has very little. That's the normal word for poor. That's not the word for poor here. The word for poor means absolutely nothing. So here's the message. The Messiah, he's coming. And he's coming to bring good news to people who recognize they have absolutely nothing by which to commend themselves to God. Nothing. In chapter 6, Luke's going to make this statement, right, that Jesus is going to record what Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It's a repeat of Matthew chapter 5 where it says, blessed are the poor in what? Money. No. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what Luke is talking about here. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what Isaiah was talking about all along. It is the condition of every person who has sinned against God. We are morally bankrupt. When Isaiah talks about our righteousness before God, Isaiah is the one that uses that filthy rags language. And I I, I can't give you all that today, but I'm just telling you when you trace out what that means is gross. That our goodness, our righteousness, when presented before God, is like filthy rags. The point is that every sinner, me, you, we have nothing to commend ourselves before God. Now, that's not how the Jews saw it. The Jews thought they were good people compared to the rest of the world. Why? Because they had God's law. And so if they were keeping the Mosaic system and if they were keeping the ceremonial laws, then eventually they would do enough good things that they would pass whatever the pass mark is and they suddenly would be right before God. Jesus comes along and he shatters that view. And he says, no, the only people to whom the Messiah brings salvation is to those who know No, they will never be good enough, ever. But when they realize that truth and they turn to God for mercy, then they will receive the grace of salvation. All pride is gone. All self-assurance is gone. And it is God's grace alone. He's not talking about the economically poor, but it is the truth that typically the poorer someone is, the more likely and the quicker that they will turn to God in such humility. If you think I'm making that up, I will remind you of something that Jesus said one day. He said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Mm. Why would Jesus say that? It's because Jesus knew riches become a barrier often to entering the kingdom of God because the person who has riches fights against their sense of need. They just keep trusting in their stuff. They just keep trying to find security in enough stuff. But the Messiah, he's got good news. He's got good news that for those who recognize they have nothing of value before God, right? No matter what they own, no matter what they have done religiously, they have nothing to buy salvation, nothing to earn their way to heaven. But there's more. The Messiah comes to proclaim good news to the poor, but he says he also comes to give freedom for the prisoners. This word freedom here, you you really can, can see it as forgiveness. That's what this is referring to. Because why is somebody in prison? They've done something wrong, and there is a punishment that 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 must be connected to that. 
he's talking about spiritual prisoners here. People who have sinned against God and they're guilty. And the word for prisoner here is a very specific word for a prisoner of war. That's the description. So here's somebody who's been taken captive by somebody else that they are put into prison for their crimes committed and they are awaiting their execution. When Jesus describes who we are in sinning against him, that's the description. Isn't it interesting how sinners typically think this is the road to freedom It is to push Christianity away because Christianity hems me in. Christianity tries to to block me in and no, this is about my rights and you, you can't infringe upon my rights. I can be whatever I want to be and I am free to be myself. When the fact is, when we lay our head on the pillow at night, we know we're not free. We feel the weight We feel the guilt. Sin has indebted us to God and we cannot pay that debt. How can a prisoner be freed? It is only if that sin, if that crime is forgiven. And Jesus is saying, that is exactly why I am here, to set the captives free because I will forgive their sins. And the only way he could do that is that Jesus actually takes the penalty that we should have taken. Let's keep going. Good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and sight for the blind. Now, it's true that Jesus did heal people who were physically blind. There were some people that he did that. But again, who he's talking about here are the spiritually blind. You say, what are you talking about? Well, the scripture says that sin blinds us to the truth of God. Sin blinds us to the things of God. When we sin, we we cannot understand spiritual truth and we cannot fix our own blindness. And so what does the Messiah come to do? He comes to give sight to the blind. I I want you to hear the way the Apostle Paul records this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is what he says. The God of this age, that's Satan, that's an enemy, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Keep going. Are we stuck? There we go. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. What does that mean? Here's what it means. There is an enemy who blinds you to the truth of who Jesus is. But God in his grace, and a part of that is sending Jesus And then it is him sending his spirit to open our hearts, to give us eyes that can see the truth of a God that loves us, the truth of a Savior who would sacrifice for us. God turns the light on that we might see who he really is. Let me show you one more thing when it comes to the light. I didn't do this in chapter one, but I'm going to do it today because it's just good. Here, here, here is a little piece back in chapter one of what Zechariah said over his son, John. This is, this is how he unpacks it. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Man, that sounds just like what we're talking about today. Let's keep going. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which, check out this, the rising sun. Who's he talking about? Jesus. 
The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. The rising sun, we would simply say the sunrise. He says, think of it this way. It's 5, it's 5 a.m. and everything is completely dark. There is the silence that comes with darkness. There is just this eerie uncertainty in the dark. That's what the world is like. But then, in a little town of Bethlehem, God takes the lid off and he enters in. A baby is born in a manger and light into the darkness. And then, from a tomb, just before sunrise, God took the lid off and Jesus steps out of a tomb being dead for three days, light into the darkness. The message is the darkness cannot hide him and the grave cannot hold him and we the church are given such a message for the world in which we live. Y'all come on, can you think of a better term to describe the world right now than dark? I mean, we got political tension, we've got racial division, we've got acts of terrorism that happen across the globe. We got a pandemic, but the biggest pandemic I see is fear. It's dark. And the message is, it always has been and it will be. So what does it look like for the people of God in this darkness to step out boldly announcing this truth that God himself has broken in and like the sunrise with the colors of God's love and his peace and hope, God is still taking the lid off of souls and entering in. Jesus says, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. One more, one more. Good news to the poor freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. It's the same word for freedom that we've seen before, but the oppressed is a word that means overwhelmed, it means overburdened. It's the kind of burden that steals all joy. Well, what is the source of that oppression? It's sin. It is the burden and the weariness of sin, being unable to keep the law that God gave us to keep. That's why Jesus got so, so angry with the Pharisees at times. Because the people already struggled with the weight that they could not keep all the law. So you know what the Pharisees did? They just made up more laws and put it on top of it. And so for people, they just felt more and more guilt. That is the context of why Jesus says what he says in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's the message of the Messiah. I have come to take the burden off. I have come to deal with your sin and instead to give you rest rest. Here's what I want to remind you today, and then I want to ask you a couple questions. People can be rich. People can be free. People can look healthy and even successful. But Jesus says, you need to look underneath. Because who they really are without him is poor Prisoners, blind, and oppressed. The last line of Jesus' sermon, verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like, well, what is that? What is the year of the Lord's favor? Obviously not 2020, right? Wrong. Wrong. 2020 was the year of the Lord's favor. 2021 is also the year of the Lord's favor. What he's referring to is the time when the Messiah appears 
and the age of salvation is here. It started when Jesus stepped onto the scene and it's gonna keep going until Jesus comes back. Can I tell you that Jesus did not actually read the last line from Isaiah 61, one and two. He left off the last line in verse two because the last line in verse two reads like this, and the day of vengeance of our God. On that day in the temple, Jesus didn't go to vengeance. You know why? Because that day happens when he shows up the next time. For now, it is the day of salvation. And I'm saying, may God awaken his church to the fact some of us spent all of 2020 griping about what we did not have not realizing that what we possess is the greatest riches in all the world, we still have the privilege of telling people this message of a God who loves and saves. Some of us spend all of our time focused on how difficult that was. And don't get me wrong, it was difficult. Don't get me wrong, there's pain involved. But come on, this is the day of salvation. He has not come back yet. That means there is still opportunity for our world to hear this news of one who saves. I gotta tell you, when I, when I look at these items, super cool, by the way, The reason I get emotional, though, is because I see something beneath them. Because whoever gets this one is going to be a part of affecting a kid's life. It's eternal. This is not eternal. This will one day burn up. You should buy it, though. (laughs) Because it's attached to something eternal. A kid's life will forever be changed. Here's what I'm asking us to see today. Do you realize how this should change how you and I see people? You know, the mean ones, the arrogant ones, the selfish ones, the greedy ones. You know them? Me too. And what Jesus does today is he says, but I'm reminding you, that's what you see on the surface. But there's a different story underneath that is eternal. They are actually poor. And they're prisoners. And they're blind. And they are oppressed. And maybe that's why they look greedy because they don't know where else to find hope and so they they hold on to everything that they can find. Maybe that's why they're arrogant because they're searching for value and they don't know yet of the God who has spoken value into their lives and so they have to promote themselves. Maybe that's why they're self, maybe that's, yeah. How does this change how you see people? And how does this change how you see the world? It's supposed to make us Stop trying to run away from it and to follow Jesus instead into it. So I got a couple of questions for you. I want to encourage you to write them down. I'm going to start doing this more and more because you know the more you write it down, the more likely you are to do something with it. Here's the first question I've got for you today. Who do you know? Who do you know that is spiritually poor, a prisoner, blind, depressed. You could put all those words into one, but who do you know? Like, who do you know? They don't know Jesus, and you, you, you know it. You know they are apart from God. Man, they put on a good show, maybe, but who do you know? I want you to at least write down a name. At least write down one name. Who, who do you know? Who does God bring to your mind today? Second question. How does that change how you pray for them? Maybe before your prayer was, God, will you just make them stop? You can ask him that, but maybe the prayer changes a little bit in God, will you open their eyes 
that they might see the truth, God, of how you love them. God, will you open their eyes to the truth of what you have done for them? And when we see this truth, it should change how we pray. Here's my third question. What has God opened as a synagogue for you to speak into their life? Here's what I told you. I told you how God set up the whole system of the synagogue at just the right time that allowed Jesus to step into that system and to speak to an amazing number of people. God appointed that. I'm asking you, what can you look at around you and go, I think God has set this up for me. For some of you, maybe it's a connection through social media. For some of you, God's put you on the same team. For some of you, you you work with this person. And see, you've been seeing work as, man, I can't believe I got to work with him. But what what if God appointed you working with them just like a synagogue to open the door for you to speak love? Maybe you're here today and what I have described a person who is apart from God is what you feel. You feel the weight. What do you do? Here's what you do. It is a willingness to turn from your sin to Jesus and to entrust your life to him. The turning you will never stop doing, always. Turning from sin, turn into him. But in entrusting your life to Jesus, that he died for you in your place, rose from the dead, and he says, all who call on him, he will forgive your sin, and he will bring you in. God, may you give us eyes that can see how wonderful is your love how broken is this world and how wide is the hope in which we speak it's in the name of Jesus we ask it amen I love you guys let's stand let's sing this song